you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. Creative Pep Talk exists to help you fulfill your creative destiny. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can keep up to date with Creative Pep Talk and my illustration work by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's jump in. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, antijpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Today on the show, we have none other than design legend, Debbie Millman. I have wanted to have Debbie on the show for so long, and I am thrilled to bring you this interview. Uh, I'm honored to have Debbie on the show, and this interview hit me like a ton of bricks to the face. Uh, (laughs) Debbie spoke into my soul. She brought some things that I desperately needed to hear and it moved me emotionally. I got a little bit emotional. Um, I think that some of you are going to hear some things in this episode that you deeply need to hear right now in your life. And I'm so pumped to bring you this episode. Uh, If you don't know, if you're living under a rock, Uh, Debbie is the host of the design podcast, Design Matters. Uh, You know, Debbie brings so much effort and research and time to each interview, and they are just masterclass interviews. And uh, the, the care and the prep that she puts into each episode is off the charts. And I, and her ability to be truly present and engaged with each, uh, uh, interviewee, I guess you would say, is off the charts. I can't even, uh, I can't imagine. I I hope that one day I can reach that level of um, ability to really do an interview on that level. So uh, you've got to check out that podcast. And, And for those of us that couldn't go to a fancy art school, Design Matters offers a glimpse into some of the greatest thinkers of today and some real insight into how to design a life and I know for me it's really elevated my mindset on the topic. Debbie's book Brand Thinking completely changed the way that I think about branding. It changed the way that I I think about how branding relates to my own life. Uh, if you need you know, a crash course in understanding the power of branding and how you can kind of dive into that uh, that topic, brand thinking will definitely more than get you started. But more than anything, the number one thing that Debbie has taught me is to bring 
my entire whole self to my practice. You know, over the years, Debbie has been so open and vulnerable and it gives her work a depth that is lacking almost everywhere else in the creative industry. And for that, I am truly grateful. In this episode, we're gonna dive into branding and the divisive topic of personal branding and how to think about that in a way that doesn't uh, forfeit your soul, but actually enhances it. And I, and I think she uh, said some really eloquent, uh, beautiful things about all of that. We're gonna touch upon the topic of life planning, which is something she goes in depth uh, with on Tim Ferriss' podcast, and you gotta check that out. And we also talk about drive versus uh, lifestyle and some different ways to think about that that are really powerful and helpful. I'm convinced that this is going to go down as one of the best creative pep talk interviews we've ever done and uh, will ever do. And just a heads up, if you're listening with kids, there is some adult language, so you've been warned. So, Debbie, I am so thrilled to have you on this episode. Uh, I've wanted you to be a guest for a long time, so thanks. Oh, thank you, Andy. Uh, so before we jump in, I have like some specific questions and different topics that I want to like pick your brain on. But before we jump into that, I just wanted to hear what's going on with you right now, because I feel like you're doing all kinds of things. Uh, it sounds really exciting. And I'm just wondering, what are you working on? What are you really excited about right now? Um, I'm excited about a lot of different things. Um, I left Sterling Brands, the company that I helped to grow uh, for 22 years yeah. back in October. So I um, feel really liberated. I loved every minute that I worked there, but I'm also really enjoying the freedom of not having to go to a specific place every day yeah. and and all of the wonderful new opportunities that seem to be coming my way. So I'm doing a lot of different things. I'm working on a show. I'm curating a show at the Museum of Design in Atlanta, which is opening in September, and it is a show about how we live in language. It's called Text Me, How We Live in Language. And it's not about texting. It's about how we live with text, which includes, of course, texting. But yeah. um, it'll be uh, Shepard Ferry has a piece in it, Lawrence Weiner, Jenny Holzer, Oliver Jeffers, Christoph Neiman. It's going to be an amazing, amazing show. And that opens in September and runs through till February. That's and uh, yeah, I'm very excited. Um, also uh, working on a brand new book. I can't really talk too much about what it's about yet, yeah. but I will soon. But it's a book that I've wanted to do my entire life. And wow. so well, let's say my entire professional adult life. Yeah. Um, since since I really started taking design seriously, which was about 25 years ago. So it's been a, a lifetime dream. <laughs> it's yeah. what it feels like, an adult lifetime dream. Um, and I'm about to start working on oral history of um, a design firm that I'm really excited about working with. And I'm still doing Design Matters and I'm still doing my um, master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts. And I'm still working as the editorial and creative director of Print Magazine. So there's a lot of things. So happening. you still have a few things going on. Yeah, just yeah. a few. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. to I like to keep busy. <laughs> it sounds like uh, Design Matters is kind of finding a totally new life and exploding into all kinds of different things. It's interesting. The show, I, I started to evolve the show, I guess about two years ago. Um, I started to move the show into a bunch of different directions, which I did really organically. It wasn't as if I woke up one day and said, I want to start doing something different with Design Matters. It yeah. was opportunities that I didn't expect to have with certain guests that were interested in being on the show or I was able to get access to. And so the show has evolved from a show that really started out as designers talking about design to a show about how creative people design their lives. Mm. I've, I've always been really fascinated by how people become who they are. How does a person become a person in, in a creative person? How do you make the decisions that ultimately lead to making things? And how do you go about the process of 
coming up with your ideas about how you want to live and making those decisions? What is the trajectory of a life? What is the what are the obstacles that people undergo to ultimately become the person that they are at that moment at that time? Yeah. And so I've been really interviewing creative people that include musicians, poets, writers, thinkers, designers, makers, tech people, you name it. If, if I'm interested in what they're doing, then I try to get them on the show. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about branding and specifically uh, personal brand. I think as an illustrator and uh, as a designer, I feel like my peers have a really uh, just complicated relationship with this idea of branding and personal brand. They're aware of kind of how problematic that can kind of be when it starts to become fake or you're trying to, you know, I just feel like a lot of my friends in the industry have the, all this baggage attached to the idea of branding at, mm-hmm. in 2017, right? Um, yet, the, all these interviews that I've done, I've just realized that it is the key factor in success. So we have this problem, this problematic relationship with something that's incredibly important. And I just want to kind of pick your brain a little bit as a branding expert on how to maybe navigate those waters or how you're trying to do that. Um, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, the first thing that I'll say off the bat is that despite the fact that I am the chair of a program called Masters in Branding, yeah, there really is no such thing as branding. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is already the perfect segue into uh, a very interesting uh, conversation. So what, what so, do you mean So a brand is the result of sound strategic positioning. Really what my program should be called is a master's in positioning. Mm-hmm. But most people don't really know what that is. They think that positioning is branding. And it's not. Branding is the result mm-hmm. of a journey that you take to define a construct that includes what you believe in, what you stand for, your ideas about what is important and valuable and meaningful And the result of that work becomes the brand. Yeah. So when people talk about personal branding or becoming a brand, what they often don't realize is that they need to be able to answer a series of very deep questions about what they believe in. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that then you can begin to execute a body of work that's based on what you believe in, that delivers what you believe in. And after a certain amount of time in doing that, then you develop a brand. Yeah. Then that results in a brand. And a brand is the, 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 the brand is the culmination of that work. You can't start out and be a brand if you don't have any positioning, if you don't understand what it is that you do that's different from everybody else on the planet in regard to what it is you're actually doing. If you can't answer that question, there's no way you can consider developing a brand. It's just not possible other, you, then you're just a copycat. Mm-hmm. So what do you believe in? What can and, and when I talk about what you believe in, I don't believe that you can determine what you believe in by polling other people as to what they think you should believe in. Yeah, you know, yeah. Martin Luther King didn't go around conducting polling on whether or not people would like his I have a dream speech. Yeah. You have to know what you believe in, whether or not it's popular, and you have to be able to stand for that. And so you need to be able to figure out what it is that you believe in, what it is that you do differently than everybody else in the world. Why is there a need for your brand? What are you going to provide? 
What are you going to provide? If you can answer that, what is that deliberate differentiation going to result in you being able to provide that no one else is going to be able to do in exactly the same way that you do it? That is the beginning of the development of a brand. And then you have to do it quite a lot before people will believe that there is a brand there. Otherwise, that what you part of your question was, well, you know, how does it not be fake? It's not fake if you can prove that it's del- a deliverable, if you've done it, and you can say that you've done it numerous times. Um, that gets you on the road to becoming a brand. Then there's a whole other level of of being able to grow and evolve and stay current and relevant and so on and so forth. But it's a complicated process because it's a complicated thing. Mm. And it takes time and it takes a deep understanding of what your motivations are as well. Are you developing a brand? For what reason are you developing a brand? Because you um, want to make more money? Or are you developing developing a brand because you want be, people to be able to understand what it is that is unique about what you do in an effort to encourage them to try doing that thing with you. Mm-hmm. Man, that is amazing. And it sounds like you're saying that a superficial understanding of branding is seeing branding as a veneer or a mask, whereas real branding is unearthing the depths the that are there. Yes, exactly. You oh, just said man. that really beautifully. So <laughs> Way better good. than I did. <laughs> no, that was amazing. And I, I, I love that because I think it gets to the heart of why people get so uh, caught up with this idea of branding and why it kind of puts a foul taste in their mouth is because they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it's supposed to be. And uh, yeah, that's phenomenal. I love so, that. So a great question to ask is, are you developing a veneer or are you developing a point of view or a movement? One of the things that I'm really, really excited about in the evolution of what brands mean in our culture today is how branding is now becoming democratized. And we saw how design became democratized. It became democratized via technology and via awareness. Um, and it's only in the last, I would say, year or two that we've seen branding become democratized. And what I mean by that is non-branding people, people with zero education in branding or design for that matter, are being able to or or are beginning to use the very tenets of branding that they might have in the past thought were just commercial enterprises for profit. Mm. What we're seeing is regular people anywhere on the planet beginning to create brands to signify movements. Mm -hmm. And we saw that happen with the logo, so to speak, um, after after one of the um, episodes of terrorism in France. Is that the the Jean-Julien one? Yes, the Jean Julien's logo, the peace sign that also was incorporating the Eiffel Tower. Mm -hmm. So here we have a a symbol, a mark, that is signifying a specific point of view, a specific call to action, a specific rallying cry. There's no profit. There's no return on investment. There's no um, need for any brand guidelines. Um, It is a mark to signify a movement. We have seen that as well with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And then what I consider to be one of the most powerful pieces of iconography to come out of our culture in a long time is the pink pussy hat. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, it's, it's about signifying a point of view. It's about signifying values. It's a way to connect others it's a way to bring people together to create a movement that's larger than one person's idea alone and branding has become branding has gone from being a commercial enterprise for the purposes of creating shareholder value Mm. to a profound manifestation of the human spirit. Yeah, man, that is amazing. (laughs) That is kind of amazing. That is amazing. Because it's, it is, I always say like, if something's powerful, it's going to get a bad reputation because we're going to remember 
all of the negative things before we think of the positive. If you think of religion and marketing and branding, a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth about those things, but they're also fundamental human powerful things. Oh, absolutely. So they have this power for good, but we often, they're so powerful that the bad kind of sticks in our brains more. But those are such, you know, fantastic examples of the power of brand for good. And yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so the first question I really had was, I don't know if this is, I don't think this is your definition, but one of the definitions in your branding book of a brand is an idea attached to a product. And I just wondered, I know that you have all of these different arms of all the stuff that you do. And I wonder if you feel like there's a idea that runs through everything that you do. It's a great question. Um, I don't know that there's necessarily an idea to everything that I do or that runs through everything that I do, but I have only in the last year or two been able to identify what makes me happiest yeah. in what I do. And that is, um, I find that I'm happiest when I'm making things. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and so whether it be a podcast or a visual essay or a lesson plan or a magazine or an essay or any number of things. If, if I'm in the process of creating something, of making something, mm-hmm. I, I, it's when time disappears. It's when I can find myself in the zone of oneness with this thing that I'm doing. Um, yeah. that's, that's when I feel like I'm, I'm most alive, when I'm happiest. And when my... Go ahead. Oh, no, just, you know, what people are happiest when their brains are harmoniously resonating with others. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm I'm happiest when not only when my brain is resonating with harmoniously with others, but also when my brain is um, resonating harmoniously with making. Yes. And let me ask you this. This is a weird question. I try to get into that zone or that flow state alongside creative people because I feel like before you get into those places, it's really hard to understand what you're trying to achieve or what it could look like to be in that state. You know, when you're just starting out and you're just fumbling around and often, it's really hard to get into that place, I feel like. I think um, it's always hard to get into that place. Well, not always, hard. but it's often hard. It can be hard, but, it, and I know this is a weird question, but if you can, is there, can you kind of just take us to when you're feeling that? Because for me, it's like a euphoric, I'm like, it's just everything's feeling right. And I wonder um, if you have an example or you could explain like something you're actually doing that gets you into that like flow state. Uh, does that make sense? Like what, what's something that puts you there and what does it look like when you're there? Like what are you actually doing in your brain? Like any way you can go there, I'm, I want to hear. Well, I guess the most frequent time that that happens is when I'm working on a podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, for any of your listeners that might have listened to Design Matters... Probably 100% of them. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I I do in preparation for an interview is a considerable amount of research. Mm -hmm. I think you've got that, the corner on that market. I don't know anybody that crushes interview research quite like you. So I'm always blown away when I listen. I'm like, I can't imagine the hours and the the love and care that you must put into uh, doing the prep for each one of those. So so it's really interesting. So I, I think that I am in in my heart just somebody that's really, really curious and nosy. (laughs) (laughs) So I love to know things about people. And so before design matters, or not, I wouldn't say before design matters, because I, I've become much more involved in the internet since design matters. But before I started to take the research as seriously as I do now, and, and that probably began about four or five years ago, and I've been doing the show for 12 years. So it hasn't always been this, this, um, significant a part of of the of the show mm-hmm. um i don't know if, if this has ever happened to you but when you're surfing um you know you'll start looking at something and then it'll take you to something else and then something else and you kind of feel guilty because you realize you shouldn't be doing that and <laughs> yeah. it's you sort of f- frittering away at 
you know, procrastinating, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I'm doing my research, I have full permission to do that. And so I end up loving that. So I'll start somewhere and I investigate almost every link I can to find out every possible bit of information that is available for someone from for for a person online. Mm-hmm. And so I could spend and I do spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours doing that. But when I'm doing it and I'm really enjoying it and learning and discovering and investigating and uncovering and all of that, time will literally slip away. Mm-hmm. It also happens once I start developing the arc of the interview that I'm doing. So I could spend eight hours researching and writing questions and it'll feel like two hours. Yeah. And and then I know that I'm, you know, I found a thing that I love because mm-hmm. it's not laborious at all. It's just this ex- exhaustive, joyful endeavor that I feel privileged to be able to do. Yeah. I feel like that's such a good point because I think uh, creativity is often like you're going to break into it when you've given your per- yourself permission to do what you really want to do. Like if you're going to sit down and paint, I feel like if you're going to sit down and paint and you're really going to work on a thing, it only starts to get interesting when you quit uh, obsessing about the return on investment. Like, okay, I, you know, I can give myself as much time to work on this thing as I need to, or I can just really enjoy it. And it just sounds like when you're talking about you know, going on a rabbit hole down in the internet, which may be enjoyable and be something you want to do, uh, but you don't have a purpose for it or a reason that you don't allow yourself to go super deep into that flow state. But because you have this excuse of like, I can do this because there's a reason, there's a purpose for this, that you can really like get totally sunk into it. And I feel like for so many people, they can't get into creative things because they're stopped. They're like, is there even any purpose in making this painting? Is there even, you know, they're stopping before they can even allow themselves to play and enjoy Right. It. And yeah. I think Jessica Hish talks about procrastinating working. Yes. Totally. <laughs> when, what are you doing when you should be working? Yeah. <laughs> and, if and turning can, that into work. I did the if, same thing. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, for me, I, I love doing that kind of research. I love doing that kind of investigative uncovering. And so for me, if I could turn that into, if I could turn that into a permission slide, for doing it, then, mm-hmm. you know, what, what else is there? Yeah, that's awesome. And I also feel like it's just a, such a loving thing to do because for me, I, my, like, I feel like some people like to be noticed and some people don't. And like, I love when someone points out something about me that's like really true. I feel loved and noticed for my wife. She's like, don't point that out. Like, I don't, I feel, I don't like being under the scrutiny of being noticed for particular things. But is she Canadian? She's British. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> so not far away. But uh, but I think, yeah, the original Canadian. Um, but I think that I, that's what I always think from your uh, podcast. There's so much love into them. And they must just feel so seen when they're there. And I just think that that's an awesome gift for those people, uh, let alone the audience. Um, so, okay. Here is... Another question I want to shoot at you, being someone who has so much experience in branding, for a lot of the people at home, they're going to be listening, uh, thinking about their own brand, being freelance designers, illustrators, creatives uh, across the board. And I wonder if there are any questions that you could share that they could ask themselves that could maybe help to unearth their philosophy, their their brand, who they are. Um, Are there any questions that you kind of would bring to clients or that you think about for yourself? Sure. The first question I would ask is why are you doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. What makes what you're doing different from anybody else? Why would somebody want to hire you? What is the benefit of somebody hiring you? That's the big question anyone has to be able to answer, whether they're making a widget, uh, a carbonated soft drink, or an illustration, or a hotel. 
or a pair of sneakers. What is the benefit? What is going to be the reason that someone would want this product? If you can't answer that question, then you can't create any sort of deliberate differentiation. And that's really what you need to be able to do. What is the benefit? Why will people be giving you their time, their money, their whatever to do the thing that you want to do? It's not going to be for altruistic reasons. There needs to be a benefit in exchange for that time or money. Yeah. If whether it be a podcast or whether it be a job. So what is it that you can provide that no one else can provide that will give that audience, that consumer, the public, the customer, the client, the the impetus, the motivation, the inspiration to want to work with you. Mm-hmm. And and developing a one sentence philosophy is really beneficial. Yeah. Um, when I was working at Sterling, my personal philosophy, when somebody would say, well, why, why, what do you, why do you work in consumer brands? What is it about consumer brands? And I would always say, I seek to make the supermarket more beautiful. Yeah. That's really what I, I mean, I, I was able to and still can spend hours and hours and hours in the same way that I can spend hours online in wormholes interview and, and investigating people's lives. I, I can also spend hours and hours in a supermarket looking at products and mm-hmm. packaging and people. Yeah. This is a tricky question, uh, but I, I say this to uh, listeners all the time, understanding what is the value pr- you provide as a creative person? Because if you're a fine artist and you're just like a, a freak artist that's so amazing that people just want to watch what you do just because it's such a spectacle, then, you know, that's fantastic. But most creative people have to deliver some significant value uh, in order to make it a business, right? And yeah, but Andy, have... even even artists have to have a, a marketplace. True. Any any totally fine true. artist that's working and seeking to be able to make a living from their artwork has to have an audience. And the way you are going to build an audience is for people to be intrigued by a body of work mm-hmm. and to be able to identify what and why that is what it is by that person doing that thing. Yeah. And so you end up with, whether it be a style or a point of view or a philosophy, there's a big difference between Jean-Michel Basquiat and Salvador Dali, Mm -hmm. between Rothko and Rembrandt. So they all, all of these artists or painters or musicians or writers have a specific point of view or deliverable, which is kind of a crass word for for art, but all of these people develop something that is unique to who they are. And there really is no difference in that development if you're a painter or if you're an illustrator. Mm -hmm. You still have to develop a body of work that delivers a specific point of view. This is a little bit esoteric, but I'm going to put you on the spot with it because... I, I've dug really deep into this. And as an illustrator, I kind of came to the conclusion that my uh, purpose and value is to illustrate something, to make something that's maybe abstract or formless, come alive, give it form so you can sink your teeth into it. And that uh, either, either to help communicate it or to grab their attention. And I, I've tried to get really clear about what my value and purpose is. But often when I talk to creative people, they have... Uh, they just look blank faces like, what could the value of creativity be? Do you have any uh, just examples of what you think the value of creative work could be? Just as something for them to like hang on to or start thinking about? I mean, for us, people that love creative things, I think we see endless value. But so many people, they just seem so... Uh, stumped when I tell them you need to have value. What are, what are your audience getting? From your See, that's work? what that's what I think is a benefit. So right. it's not so much value; um, it's about being valuable. Mm-hmm. So you know, people talk about a value proposition, and I'm not entirely sure that that's as relevant as it used to be, mm-hmm. um, because it's not always about the cost. Right. I think it's about what makes something valuable to someone. Right. 
That's and good. can you identify what it is that you do that could be valuable to someone? Is it the way you express your worldview? I mean, if you were to look at some of the great, great illustrators of our time, so people like Christoph Neiman or Brian Ray or Wendy McNaughton or Roz Chast or, I mean, and the list goes on and on, put that body of work in front of a person and you'll be able to identify that it's a body of work. So there is something quite valuable about identifying a specific person for a specific job if you can see how they're going to deliver something that is going to be able to visualize an idea or a point of view in a way that nobody else could quite do it in the same way. Yeah. Now, not everybody could be a Christoph Neiman. Not everybody could be a Nicholas Blackman. Not everybody could be a Wendy McNaughton. But it took them a long time to be who they are. And there's a journey that a person takes. I One of the biggest issues that I, I see in the creative world now is the speed in which people expect things to happen. I often say now that people are living in a 140-character culture yeah. in that they expect that their desire for acknowledgement is going to be as fast as the body of work can be developed. And, and it just doesn't happen that way. I think anything worthwhile takes a long time. It takes a, a decade to create a body of work that has a certain level of craft, expertise, meaning, depth, that, that just can't be done in, in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless, so. unless of course, there, there's you know, circumstances and you're a genius. Right. Yeah. But most people, it's a slugfest. There is no, there's no, I don't think, you know, people are always talking about process. And I get the question, what is your process? What is your process? I'm like, there is no such thing. I mean, what what is a process? You 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 know, burn some sage and yeah. meditate for an hour and bathe in a certain way. No, you put your ass in the chair and you start working. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, Christoph Neiman talks about like staring at the wall. That's his process. Like, yeah, he yeah. thinks. He yeah, thinks. he thinks. He thinks. I think, and I try to get those thoughts down on paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's it. You just have to sit down and do the work. And the do process happens. Day over 10 years as you develop your craft and your mind to be able to engage in that creative work. And that's Absolutely. where the process comes Absolutely. to play. Absolutely. And if anybody doesn't believe me, they can go back and listen to the shows that I did back in 2005. Right. Which are horrendous. <laughs> right. And the only reason I keep them out there is that I can say, look, you do get better over time. Yeah, <laughs> Those shows right. are unlistenable. Yeah. They're unlistenable. They're horrible. But that was my beginning. That was when I started. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know. I did it because my I felt like my soul was dying and I needed some sort of creative outlet and, yeah. and something that didn't have any commercial value. And this was an opportunity that happened to come my way and grabbed it. Yeah. And and I had no idea what I was doing. I had I, when I started working with the late great Hillman Curtis. He he was the one that said, "Debbie, you don't have to say mm hmm after every every <laughs> answer." <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks, Hillman. So then I had another guy say, "You know, sometimes it might be better for you to like wait until you really can process the answer before you ask your next question." <laughs> that is, those are good interview tips. Uh, that is hilarious. Uh, so I want to poke at this one last time, and I'm going to move on. But okay. what do you think, uh, even a magazine, and then further on the audience of the magazine gets from something like a Christoph Neiman illustration? Like what, what, what are they getting? What, what's the, you know, when they engage in that, does that make sense as a question? Yes, it does. It okay. does, and it's a really, really good question. The, I think that. With Christoph, there is a wit and a whimsy and a sort of cheekiness about living. Yeah, that's really And good. if that's what you're interested in conveying, Christoph is your man. Mm -hmm. If you want someone that is going to be able to take the political message of our moment and turn it into a profound 
um, expose on the absurdity of humanity than you call Barry Blitt. Right. You know, if you if you want to get a plaintive, heartbreaking, naive understanding of humans, then you call Brian Ray. Mm. So, I mean, I think that, and I don't know that they would necessarily be able to define what it is that they're doing in the same way, but yeah. as somebody who is a huge, huge fan of their work, who spent a lot of time with their work, who's researched all of their work a great deal, mm -hmm. I can say that you can look at the letter forms of their captions. You can look at the way in which Oliver Jeffers, his his little characters have defiance in a line. I mean, Oliver Jeffers can create a, an, an emotion of defiance or, or a sense of heartbreak or loneliness or meekness or cowardice or courage in a line stroke, in a line stroke. Look at the way, and I talked to Alison Bechdel when I interviewed her on the show, the way in which she could draw the curl of a person's toes around a chair leg is masterful, mm -hmm. masterful. And so the, I think all of the illustrators that, that I'm, I'm talking about today have an ability to create a mood with motion and line in a yes. way that nobody else can. I mean, and, and they all can do it. They just do it in different ways. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a, a an emotion in, in an Oliver Jeffers line, and there's an emotion in a Christoph Neiman line, and a Roz Chast line, and a Barry Blitt line, and they're all different, but they all have a, a, the same level of depth. And we all know the value of going to a stand-up comedy show and the value of being delivered the emotion of laughter right oh, we all yeah, feel that totally. and it's like that we're gonna pay for that and i think often it's as simple as you know christoph neiman can deliver a feeling of delight with a picture and right. then that's real value you yeah you said that uh, i mean tina fey and chris rock are both comedians yeah but they deliver their worldview in an entirely different way mm -hmm. they're both hysterically funny but yeah. they deliver in a very different way. They, I feel like I talk about this too, this idea that a big part of your purpose, if you think about it like a giant avatar for your essence or like a mech, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with like a mech, but you get into this giant armor and you control this robot, but it basically like what you're saying, it sounds like, and I, and I haven't even thought about it in this level is like, it takes your point of view, your worldview, your you-ness, and your artwork commands it and exemplifies it and communicates it to another person in this very pointed, purposeful way where it's like, here's my worldview and I captured it in this line and you can feel it. I can deliver it to you. Uh, and it's like an extension of, it's like being able to command your uh your essence, your personality through a medium and deliver it to somebody else. And that is incredibly powerful on its own. I, I agree, except where I, where I fundamentally disagree is the idea of this being an avatar or a, 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 a sort of getting the sense of <laughs> Iron Man, you know? Right, yeah. That's what, yeah. That's a, that is what I'm saying, but I want to hear what But what, I would say it's the opposite. It's that. the opposite. That's an external... Right. Back armor and yeah. i'm saying it's and it's like pulling your heart out of your chest mm -hmm. and 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 creating something with that where there's no armor where there's no where, where your sense of humanity is is evident and palpable and tangible and and not put on for the world to see yeah. i feel like it That's part of what Part of the issue, the sort of love-hate relationship I have with social media is the notion that people are in a constant state of self-positioning. Right. You know, I, I at the end of 2015, I went through a really, really hard time. I was really down. My father had died. I had gone through a couple of really, really serious sadnesses. And um, I had bumped into a friend that I hadn't seen in a while. And she's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm really 
been tough couple of months and been really down. And she's like, oh, you seem fine on Facebook. And I'm like, everybody's fine on Facebook. Everybody's fine on Facebook. And so it was, you know, we spend a lot of time and, and, this is where branding can be quite a, a dangerous thing, um, creating this armor, you know, this mm-hmm. this persona that is um, for other people's benefit. It's it's to be able to communicate something that you want people to believe about you rather than what is yes. believable yeah. about you. Yeah. And, and that's where we can get into real danger. I mean, when I was growing up, I remember I wanted a certain pair of jeans and a certain type of shirt because I felt like the cool kids were wearing that. And if I wore that, I'd be perceived as being cool. Um, and even when I ended up getting them, I, I just felt a little bit cooler, but I doubt anybody thought I was any cooler, truly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I might have for a moment, but, you know, then the hedonistic treadmill kicks in and then you're like, oh, why now I need that? And then I need that. And, you know, it just never ends. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So, yeah, I think you're right about that. And I, uh, instead of adding on to, but getting to the soul, to something. Yeah, yeah. That's taking awesome. away, you know, mm-hmm. not adding on, but, but taking away, stripping it all away. Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about life planning. Uh, I'm so fascinated by uh, all that you've talked about on this subject between the class with Milton Glaser and what you do with your students. Uh, before we jump in there, could you... Just give us a little background into how this started with you and then how you kind of benefit from it. I never really had a life plan. I graduated college. I, I mean, I, I've talked about this at, at length. Um, yeah. I, I, My sole criteria for going to the college that I went to was that I could afford it and my best friend Tammy went there you know that was there was not a lot of planning yeah. Yeah. there was not a lot of guidance right. uh, I went to a skate school because that was all I could afford I happened to pick a great school quite by accident it mm-hmm. was by no means intentional I went to SUNY Albany which when I graduated was one of the best state colleges in the country mm-hmm. it had a great student newspaper I fell into that quite by accident just mm-hmm. because they had a great student newspaper and I got intrigued by the student newspaper started working there again after um, several rejections and um, a a bit of luck and timing. Um, I have never, I'm not going to say never, for most of my life, I did not feel like I was ever as good as anyone else that was doing what I was doing. And so I always felt like whatever opportunity was presented to me was the last chance for that thing to ever happen. Mm. You know, your last chance for love, your last chance for employment, your last chance for success. And so rather than be choiceful about what I was doing, I tended to just take whatever came my way because I mostly felt that I'd never get another job again. Mm. Um, that changed when I was in my mid-40s, I started to believe that I had some talent in branding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, which sounds funny, but it, but it really took that long. I mean, I, I, you know, that whole fraud thing yeah. um, is, is really pervasive. Um, and it wasn't until Milton's class in 2005 where I actually was able to declare for the first time in my life a vision for the future, Mm -hmm. my future. And that class, which sadly Milton doesn't do anymore, it was a summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts, which I, again, quite by accident, was able to take. I was at the time just writing for print magazine. I had a column in every issue. And as a writer, I'd get the issues right off the press. So I'd get them before they went to subscribers and before they went on the newsstand. And quite by accident, I was going through the magazine, that particular issue in January of 2005, and saw an ad for Milton's Summer Intensive immediately called it. It was one of these first come, first served classes. It was a sign up. You didn't have to apply. And because I was one of the first people to apply, I mean, to to sign up, I got in the class. I called because I got the issue before anybody else did. And um, I did the class that summer. 
and it was um, a life-changing experience. One of the exercises in the class was to develop your five-year plan. Mm. What would you do? What would you? How would you envision your life five years from now if you were doing exactly what you wanted to do? Forget about fear. Forget about acceptance, rejection. What if you could be doing anything? What would you want to do? And you have to envision your entire life. What are you wearing? Where are you working? Who are you living with? What are you eating? What are you sleeping on? Everything, everything down to the minutest detail. And I put an enormous amount of energy into this. Not only did I write an essay, I also made a list, (laughs) a list of all the things that I wanted in this essay Mm. so that it was clear, you know, it was really clear. Um, And Milton warned us, he said, be be careful. This is a magical little exercise. Don't be surprised if everything you wish for comes true. And he had said that he had been, he had been teaching this class for decades and was always hearing from students who wrote after the five years was over and said, you know, everything, everything happened. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that everything happened, but what I can say is after five years, so by 2010, I would say about 80% happened. And by 2015, which was 10 years, I would say 99% happened. Yeah. So if I look at my life before and after, it's an entirely different life. An entirely different life and nothing else changed. It wasn't like I suddenly uh, started working out or started with a new therapist or (laughs) moved or got a new job or anything like that. It was this power of declaring what it is you want and making the time to do that. Um, It was magical, profound. So I talked about it on the Tim Ferriss show and um, so Which I think everybody it's, it's, should go listen to. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that is, I think, part of why it's. I mean, Tim's show is just a force of nature, and yeah. So a lot of people have reached out to me about it. Um, I changed it to ten years. So I only started to do this after Milton stopped teaching it because while you were, while he was teaching this class. Um, there was a sort of fight club pact where you couldn't talk about what you did in the class Mm -hmm. outside of the class Uh, because it is really an evolution that leads up to this final exercise. And so when he stopped teaching the class, I started teaching the exercise, but as a 10-year plan because most of my students are very young and I wanted to give them more runway. And I've been teaching it now for several years and similar to Milton, I get emails all the time from my undergrads and my grads. Um, I teach undergraduate um, at the School of Visual Arts and then I have my master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts. So I teach in both, both in different ways, but in both um, grad and undergrad and hear from people all the time. Yeah. Now it hasn't been 10 years. I haven't been doing this for 10 years. Um, so I'm hearing from people even just a couple of years in that this is having an impact. So I don't know what it is, but I, I suspect it's something about declaring what it is you want. It was really the first time in my life that I made a tangible effort, evidence of, of wanting mm-hmm. that was more than just thoughts. And do you think it was, it's just uh, because someone made you do that? Like it's the first time where you had the permission and the right to sit down and really reflect on this thing because it was an assignment, that's where it really got unlocked. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I just real quick, I want to say, if someone wants to do this, one of my listeners wants to do it, do you have any tips for entering into asking yourself this question, how to approach doing it, how, uh, just, yeah, I don't know, any tips that you well, have? Well, I would, I would suggest that they um, go to the go to Tim Ferriss's website because okay. he's written about it. Um, and I think he's going to be doing another post about it. Okay, so, awesome. So watch that space. And then I think a couple of his listeners have started different websites like your 10yearplan.com where they've okay. transcribed all of the directions. And so a lot of information is out there now about okay. it. Okay, fantastic. Awesome. So I want to ask you, this is like my own personal question that I'm just going to, you know, use this interview as a, uh, as a uh, way of getting this into it. I personally feel like, you know, I turned 30 last year 
and I feel like I'm having all of these. Uh, <laughs> I like that you rolled your eyes at that, uh, but <laughs> but I feel like I uh, I have this momentum and all these things that I could possibly do at this stage, and I feel like for the first time I don't have a clear idea of what I want the next years to look like, and I feel like I'm kind of stuck at a crossroads between being able to scale things because you can scale them and, and you know, just the allure of like, I could grow something, I could do this momentum, I could keep following that track or uh, kind of going with, you know, a path that is more based on how I want to spend my time every day. You know, what does my lifestyle look like? And I feel like you seem, you know, I don't know you personally, but I feel like from what I can gather, you've explored maybe both of these sides to a degree. And I just wonder, like, what is your take or your advice on when thinking about the future? Um, you know, I, you can go this unbridled drive ambition way where it's just like build and grow and amass and make stuff or um, think about what you actually want to be doing on a daily basis. Uh, and I just want to hear if you have any wisdom or feedback on that. Well, I, I have a, I, when I graduated college, I graduated college in 1983 and immediately felt like I needed to compromise because as I, as I mentioned, I didn't feel like I was smart enough or talented enough or anything enough. I was also, um, financially challenged, you know, I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted to live in Manhattan. And, you know, I've talked, I've talked about this as well in that I felt that it, that my lead gene was at the time, my decision-making process was through a filter of financial security because I didn't have any financial um, help. I, was limited by what I could earn in order to take care of myself and made a decision that I would go into commercial art as opposed to anything that was more fine art oriented because it would give me a better chance at being self-sufficient and self-sufficient was my most important thing at mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. But I, I was lying to myself, Andy, because what was really the most important thing was I wanted to live in Manhattan. You know, I'm a native New Yorker, but I had never lived in Manhattan at that up until then. I lived in Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island and um, Long Island. And I, I wanted to live in Manhattan. That was my vision for my life at that point. I needed to live in Manhattan. And living in Manhattan when you're poor <laughs> is really challenging. Yeah, It's really challenging. So I, you know, I was telling myself for decades, oh, I compromised. I wanted to be this artist and I now I'm this artist or whatever. And it was all a big fat lie because really what I was doing was organizing my life around my ability to live in Manhattan. If I wanted to be an artist more than anything else, if I wanted to be an artist, a fine artist more than anything else, I could have moved in with my mother in Queens mm -hmm. and lived for very little or, or for free. I could have lived somewhere much less expensive. I could have stayed in Albany where I went to school, but I want to live in Manhattan. And so I did everything that was necessary to do that. There were times I had three jobs in order to be able to pay my rent. I was living in a fourth floor tenement walk-up. It was deplorable. And I did that because I wanted to live in Manhattan. Mm. So the long, the long answer to this question, this really profound question you have is, what is your non-negotiable? Mm. What is the one thing that you want more than anything else? Because I would suspect that if it's something that you want that badly, you will figure out a way to get it. If that's what you want more than anything else. So what makes your heart sing? What do you want more than anything else in the world? And my, my advice would be to pursue it, to do it now. Because if not now, when? You know, I never thought about the finiteness of life until I turned 48. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, in 12 years, I'm going to be 60. In 22 years, I'm going to be 70. And 22 years ago, I was in my 20s. 
So it was a profound, profound wake-up call that life is finite and it goes by so fucking fast that if you're not doing what you want, stop doing it and start doing whatever it takes to get to your non-negotiable. What is that one non-negotiable? Just the one, just the one, not 15 things. I mean, yes, you can write out your 10-year plan with all your hopes and dreams, but in order to get started, what is the one thing that you want more than anything? And organize your life around that. That's, yeah, that is extremely powerful. And uh, I wonder, I know that... um, you know, you've learned so much through your whole journey and you can't really go back and skip things. But I wonder if you, um, if you can think in relative terms, whether the non-negotiable of living in Manhattan was really something that you needed to do or something that was worth something to you. And if you were sacrificing maybe something more important to yourself like i guess i i guess i'm not trying to say, i don't know i mean back that, and change it no no i mean i would what i i wouldn't go back and change much i'd go back and maybe not date some of the people i dated <laughs> um i might not have gotten married that second time you know yeah. it's <laughs> there are definitely some things that i i wouldn't do again but in terms of the journey to to who i am right now um and even if it meant that those people were important to that result of who I am today, I'd, I'd yeah. do it again. Um, you know, Seth Godin says that when people ask him, you know, what would you go back and change? He's like, nothing, because I, that would mean I wouldn't be right here right now. And, yeah. I, I'm, and so I kind of feel like I have to co-op his answer and say, you know, I feel that way too. I, I feel though there's been tremendous rejection, tremendous heartache, over the years, I have landed in a place where I feel very privileged to be able to do the things that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And and now my biggest fear is running out of time. Yeah. And that's why I, I recommend that people just start sooner. Um, I, I didn't have enough belief in myself to, to start doing what I what I wanted to do professionally because I didn't also know what I wanted to do professionally. A lot of what I did, I ended up, as I said, sort of fell into even branding. So I would, I'm just so conscious now of, of running out of time and not being able to do everything that I want to do. That's my biggest fear now is what happens if I don't get to do everything I want to do. Mm. So, so, I would suggest for anybody, especially people in their 30s, you, you know, you don't have to succeed at everything you do. Yeah. You can fail. You know, when you're in, you, you could still, I mean, people in their early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, you're expected to fall flat on your face. You're expected to. And if you avoid doing that, you are likely not going to achieve much. Mm. You can't fail your proof your life. You yeah. can't. Man. I need to hear that. So I, uh, let me ask you it one other way, because I feel like this is another angle. That's really good. But I, I feel like, do you feel like there's a vision or a, a, a different non-negotiable other than living in Manhattan that did make you more happy? Does that make sense? Making things, making, making things. things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So making what you're spending things. your time on rather than some kind of exterior yeah. goal. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's really good. All right. That's awesome. Uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I really thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been super brilliant. And uh, I personally got questions answered that I really needed to hear. So I just couldn't appreciate it anymore. Oh, thank you, Andy. Well, I look forward to the tables being turned this fall when I understand you're willing to come on my show and talk about your new book and do all kinds of fun things together. I will be absolutely honored. So thank you so much. Excellent. So till then. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That was absolutely brilliant, Debbie. I'm so, so, so genuinely thankful for you taking your time to be on our show and and give us your attention and and, and bring so much uh, heart to this interview. It meant a lot to me. You know, I'm going to be listening back through it. I, there were some real like 
words that I needed to hear in this interview, and I just couldn't appreciate it anymore. Thank you so much, Debbie. You are awesome. We love you. And, you know, I think Debbie's having just this explosive moment right now, and nobody deserves it more than you. Uh, you, you know, someone who has not taken shortcuts, who's put in the time and energy, who's the real deal. And uh, I'm just so, I'm, I'm genuinely just so, so happy for you, Debbie. As uh, you know, I just think you, you deserve all this. So thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you guys got tons from that. I'm sure that you did. Big thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Nate Utesh for all the other tunes and his band Metavari. You can hear their stuff at soundcloud.com slash Metavari. Thanks to the listeners. We appreciate you like crazy. And when I say we, I mean me because it's just me. But, but, but I super appreciate all of you uh, creative pep talk lovers out there. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening every week. Hey, do whatever it takes to stay pepped up. Yeah.